Welcome to the Culture We Speak podcast. I'm your host, Deanna Latimer Hearn. In this episode, I explore issues relating to language, liberation, and activism with Ms. Simone Ruskamp of Healing Justice Santa Barbara. From the flavorful foods we eat to the rhythm of the beats we keep, our hair and clothes define what it means to be sheep. For centuries, onlookers have been captivated by our mystique and every aspect of our being that makes us unique. This is the culture we speak. I'm here with Simone Akila Ruskamp, who is a Black woman who loves Black people. She is a co-founder of Juneteenth Santa Barbara, as well as Healing Justice Santa Barbara. She has led successful campaigns to center de-escalation and affirmation of life in Santa Barbara police use of force policies. She has secured monies for mental health positions instead of additional funding for law enforcement. Ms. Ruskamp has established city and county institutional support for Black cultural events and designated sites of Black Santa Barbara history as historical landmarks to protect them from gentrification. She is currently one of the driving forces behind the Forming Police Oversight Commission in Santa Barbara, an organizing effort spanning over four years. Simone is a Master of Social Work student at Howard University, where she is a John E. and Barbara S. Jacobs Social Justice Fellow and Ambassador for the HBCU Center for excellence in behavioral health. She studies Afrocentric approaches to healing and therapy. Simone is a former vice president of Howard University's School of Social Work Student Council Association, and she is currently a student representative of the D.C. chapter of the National Association of Black Social Workers. So now that I am out of breath and have said all the things, (laughs) you have certainly been very busy. So welcome, Ms. Simone Ruskamp, to The Culture We Speak, and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to be in community with you. And for those who don't know, I just have to say that like, this is what like support and joy oh, thank you. like because well, I'm excited to be on this podcast. I also just want to acknowledge the other opportunities that you've shared with me. One in just seeing you work, but then also seeing you and supporting you at a conference as well. So I'm excited. Yes, thank you. Um, it was such a pleasure to connect. I'm so thankful and I really feel like the connection was I don't know. I know it's beneficial, as you're saying, for you, but I'm like, <laughs> I feel like I'm the one who is, is benefiting from it. I think we had an awesome time at the conference you helped me with. And just moving forward, I think we're going to have a lot of work that we can do collaboratively. I do look forward to it. And I thank you. And I do not take our connection at all for granted. So thank you again for taking the time to be here. So I know you've been instrumental in a number of anti-racism efforts. If that's not already been outlined clearly, (laughs) can you share a little about your background in social justice activism? Sure. So first I'll just share, I use she, her pronouns for anyone who might need a a visual description. I'm a dark-skinned Black woman and my locks are almost down to my chin. I'm going to (laughs) try to claim some extra inches, but (laughs) excited to be here. So goodness, I would say organizing and being in community really is related to what's in my bio, which I'm really proud of, but starts in one, loving myself, but also just loving my community. So for me, I am incredibly lucky to have inherited just a legacy of organizing from my family. So my grandfather actually retired from the Postal Workers Union. And he was always super proud to say as a part of that union, one of the things they pushed for was to have a break room for women 
Mm-hmm. And so often we're like, when we think of politics now, we say we need to think about the intersections. We need to think about folks who are more marginalized than us. And if I mm-hmm. think about my grandfather who had a whole other idea of like gender and sex roles, he was like back in the day trying to make sure that women had a place to sit down, right? Mm-hmm. Like to take a break from working because <laughs> it was a lot of work in the post office and you're on your feet for hours. Yes. Um, and so because of him and the way he talked about his work, my mother, mother and my grandmother and my sibling that really brought me to the organizing that I do now and mm-hmm. to that work which I'm excited to talk about is really language justice so how do we talk about how do we name the things that we need in our community mm-hmm. and how do we also make sure that however someone wants to ask for that need is supported and so we're not saying you can only ask for that in a specific way right yes. or I'm not going to be listening if you share your need or what's frustrating you in this moment in this particular way and Mm -hmm. so language justice has really been a part of my activism and organizing even if I didn't call it that 10 years ago that's awesome and I I agree I think that tone policing is such a big piece of that and the the respectability politics that fall into how you go about advocating for yourself is such a mess like I think it creates a mess in our society because we're shutting down voices constantly because we don't necessarily want like the message that's coming across, but then we don't like the way it's being stated. And when people are advocating for basic needs, their voice has to be what their voice is. You can't really police how another person is communicating at that point in time. So that's beautiful. And I want to touch on the grandparents, like shout out to grandparents and grandfathers. <laughs> My grandfather was active in civil rights and did a lot of things. And I saw that and watched the things that he did in the community and his activism really kind of sparked some of what I do now. So it's beautiful. funny that that's another kind of yeah. I guess thing that we have in, in common. So tell us a little bit more about Juneteenth Santa Barbara and Healing Justice to Santa Barbara. Yes. Well, first I want to say the things that you think of doing while you're pregnant, because for real, (laughs) I was content with having Juneteenth celebrations or affirmations in my home in Santa Barbara for the longest time until I was pregnant with my little one. And Mm -hmm. so I'm originally from Oakland and in Oakland, there's like a big street festival that takes off several blocks on Father's Day weekend on the 19th. And there's just all of these black vendors and sound and culture and space making. And especially as I was preparing to have my daughter, I was missing that communal space to share joy. And just given the context of like politics and what was happening and just so many black folks not being heard, or yes. only being seen within the context of grief and trying to figure out like, yes. what you want to do now that like yet another Black woman, Black trans person, Black man was mm. taken from us. And so while pregnant, I was like, I need some place. You need, you need more things to do? Right. <laughs> so at the time, I already had been organizing as a part of a wonderful group called El Central Santa Barbara. And through mm-hmm. that group, we had started freedom schools where we brought in local histories of Black and Brown organizers. And just in organizing, again, so oftentimes it's reactionary. So we did that mm-hmm. because the school board was not integrating ethnic studies. And so in the midst of this, we were like, but yo, we missed over the black joy. Like, yes, we want to have the freedom school. And yes, we want to talk about these things, but Mm -hmm. where is the joy at? Right. And Mm -hmm. so when I was having my baby and having all the emotions of all the things, I was (laughs) like, okay, this needs to happen. And so I called up some friends. We were like, it's about to be a cookout. I don't know how many people are going to come, (laughs) but we need to do it. And so I had 
my baby on May 6th and we planned and cooked and prepared everything for Juneteenth. So I was there like oh, with wow. one month old. Oh my gosh. Stuff. But it led to this beautiful vision. And part of that work, part of what I learned about Juneteenth, because participating in Juneteenth as a young person was different than going mm-hmm. as an adult or thinking about what I wanted to see as an adult. And yes. as an adult, I realized I didn't want to celebrate Juneteenth if sites of Black importance were actively being erased. So exactly. like, yes, I want mm-hmm. to create for us to celebrate, but also the site down the street where some of the first Black residents lived is getting gentrified and we don't have it anymore. And there's not a plaque and that's yes. not okay. So of course me yes. being me, I was like, okay, what are we gonna do now? So like a year later through organizing and planning in partnership with Crystal, who also co-founded Healing Justice Santa Barbara, we put forward plans for a central coast of California that actually loves and uplifts and cherishes Black people. Yes. Um, and that was really important to the work that we were doing because Crystal has roots in Santa Barbara going back like four or five generations. Especially California doesn't like to acknowledge that Black people have been present for so long or that yes. the only reason they have is because many of them were escaped enslaved folks who knew their worth and their dignity and then created, you know, families. And created um, space for themselves. Yes. 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 Mm-hmm. And so all of that work has really blossomed into so many different things, too many things, perhaps, (laughs) all at this core, right, of like supporting Mm -hmm. Black folks. So yes, in this moment, we won a grant from the state of California to preserve Black landmarks in the area. Amazing. Um, We also got a grant from the county to re-envision safety, to work towards oversight of police. So it's all of these different things, but at our core, it is what is the community that Black people need to thrive? Mm -hmm prevent further displacement and also what brings us joy because yes. we want to glorify we don't want to glorify organizing because there's a side of it that is higher labor and labor intensive yes cast their bodies mm-hmm. we want to make space for black folks to just be right and so that's where we took our name from healing justice is a framework mm-hmm. that's really aligned with disability justice to say like what do we need for all of us to show up and participate in the way fully. That yes, fully. Yeah. And that's so important because a lot of times the lens is on Black suffering and Black struggle and not so much on just celebratory moments and moments where we are in that joyous experience. And that is really a large part of overcoming. That's a large part of what gets us through the other pieces that seem to take center stage in a lot of the conversations that we see around Blackness. Mm-hmm. So that's amazing. I'm very excited to hear about that. And it's great to just learn more. I, I read your uh, CV not long ago. And was yeah. really impressed, but I was like, okay, like, so girl, now, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And that's why I was laughing when I said, when we collaborate, and I'm like, you're trying to help me, and I'm like, no. I feel like I should be assisting you in some ways, which is amazing. And I'm very thankful for that. My next question is back to sort of the language and the intersection of language and social justice. You know, what role does language play in social justice? And and you touched on tone policing before, but how do those sort of go together, especially as we look at education in our society? So I would say it is integral. So in Healing Justice, again, where we say that we support Black people, we had to really sit down and say, well, who do we mean and Mm -hmm. who is included when we say we support all Black people? And so it was Mm -hmm. important to us to think about what are the most marginalized experiences who are often left out? Who are the people that are cleaning up 
after the direct actions or putting things together or doing the childcare that maybe are not speaking, but are the reason that direct action is taking place in the first yes. place. And mm-hmm. so we had a whole list. We wanted to make sure that we centered black parenting people, black people with disabilities, darker skinned black folks. And mm-hmm. as we were talking about that, we were like, we also need to make sure that we create intentional space for black folks who either choose not to code switch or black folks who don't know how to code switch. We wanted to make sure that every Black person could say in whatever voice felt meaningful to them what they needed. And I think we also learned, or I would say learn, maybe even the hard way, that systems don't give us the language to describe what we want from them. Like, Mm -hmm. that would be pointless. Like, they're not going to give us the word, like, (laughs) abolition or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. ask for it. And so some of these things, which are closest to our heart, which we desire, we're not going to be able to express in standard Mm -hmm. English. We're going to have to use Black English to talk about these concepts that in many ways, you know, this country has not allowed us to even vision. And Mm -hmm. so we thought about that. We were like, whoa, that's actually (laughs) radical. That's exciting. Yes. We're Mm -hmm. the first Black folks to do that. I think Black feminists or Black womanists have been saying that for decades. We're just Mm -hmm. what they have said. But I think also many of us, so myself, Crystal and Leticia, have also been the woman who has been harmed and then told that we could only express that harm in a specific way. Exactly. And I'm talking like structural violence. So mm-hmm. whether that happened to us within institutions or like intimate physical violence. It's a whole other story, but there's a lot of deep pain that I have in relationship to policing, even in Santa Barbara, where for a period, I was not able to eat. I could only have like smoothies because I couldn't like hold down food. I was that fearful because of police being violent, like tanks Mm -hmm. brought out against me. And I could not find the words in standard English to describe the harm that had been inflicted on me. Exactly. Yeah. City council meetings or county meetings. And I would say what I needed to say in the voice that was mine. And while there can be a time and a place to talk about like strategy and this and that the strategy should never be that we're going to minimize someone's part yes and erase your yes erase where you are coming from in order to make others feel comfortable because it's really about the the person receiving the message but sometimes Mm -hmm. that message is here this is what it is and you need to take it as it's coming (laughs) and this is what i have for you you know and that's Mm -hmm. all i have because it's already enough work to arrive in a space to speak up to advocate for yourself and others and then to be told that it needs to be dressed up in a certain way is further damaging to what you're trying to even accomplish so it's it's Mm -hmm. just Yeah, I'm with you there. And I think that's beautiful, you know, what you've shared about that. And thank you for your openness and transparency with that, because that's a very real struggle that a lot of us have experienced in this country in terms of having um, systems working against us and structures, institutions, etc., literally damaging Blackness, damaging Black identity, damaging Black bodies. And it's very hard to navigate that. So I thank you for your transparency in in that that answer. Wow. Okay, so we met on the online community Respect the Dialect, and you mentioned already you shouted out some Oakland. So I'm going to go directly there and ask you about your connections to African-American English and the Abonics movement, the things that kind of were happening in mid-90s with AAE or Abonics at the time. Yes. And so this is one of the things also that's so interesting to experience as a child and then hear about it as an adult, because in the moment that I was experiencing, I didn't realize that this was historic or that something out of the ordinary was happening, perhaps. Mm -hmm. What I experienced 
was just my family or like school community, almost like being at a crossroads or not knowing what option was best. And I think, again, this is another thing that's really important about being in community with Black folks is that like not all Black people are going to agree. Oh, definitely. Um, and it was the same thing around <laughs> ebonics or mm-hmm. English, but there were nuances or just layers to the conversation that were helpful for me to understand what Black English could mean mm-hmm. or what space it might create for other Black children. So I mostly remember my parent taking me, which is probably maybe why I bring my daughter to all types of organizing. (laughs) But them taking me to like organizing meetings, but I would say maybe they were even more like listening sessions between Mm -hmm. Black parents. So some of the arguments that I heard come up or the concern was that there were so many Black children who were not meeting these like academic standards or who were not able to participate Again, mm-hmm. standard by the school district because they were not speaking English properly. And when it was mentioned, it was also accompanied with this idea of like competition. So like, we have to do this. We have to say that our children deserve this because if we don't, then there's going to be like Spanish speaking folks who will mm-hmm. get these resources and our children will not. And there's a whole bunch of flaws to that because we know oh, that so many Spanish <laughs> too. We yeah. know that like there's no reason for black and brown communities to be pitted against each other. But I do remember as a child hearing that, like, okay, well, I don't want to call it like a scarcity mindset, but almost like, okay, we have to do it. Yeah. Right. And I wanna I'm gonna interrupt you for a second and yeah. I'm sorry, but there's a total purpose to us being pitted against each other but yeah I'm with you in the sense that like we shouldn't be but there's a a whole divide and conquer mentality that comes with this idea that this community needs to compete with that community and and there's not enough for everybody like you said in this scarcity mindset so facts but continue blackness be complex because again yes exactly (laughs) Exactly. anyway yeah Um, (laughs) luckily I don't even know how many meetings happened before a Black parent finally said that. Mm-hmm. Why are we fighting against Latinx families? Or the term like Chicana might have even been used, like specifically mm-hmm. Mexican-American folks. And this is a larger discussion about like why the Oakland Unified School District creates scarcity. So like makes yeah. these communities who all do not have the same access to like resources or investment. Why are we exactly. thinking we gotta fight them who are our neighbors that we see every day? Exactly. Of both of us being like, okay, this is something that both of our children are navigating what is a different strategy? And so while as a child, I didn't think about like, okay, what were like the shifts in strategies that I mm-hmm. saw? <laughs> I can reflect now and be like, okay, that was a shift in strategy to be mm-hmm. like, okay, at this point, we need to make sure our children have resources because we don't want them to go to this group to then be like, well, what does it mean if we were to say that mm-hmm. our home languages or Ebonics are actually a language, right? Yeah. So now I'm not saying I'm disqualifying or I'm competing against this group of people, but mm-hmm. that we are both entitled to the same resources. So as an adult, yes. I was one grateful for like Black community, people being together who disagreed, but who in the midst of that were able to think of a more inclusive approach yes. that validated just Black knowing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's an adult, I could be like, that's cool. <laughs> that's <laughs> you were in the school um, of that though. You were learning it yeah, along the way. So. For, for context, I was like seven or eight at the time, yeah. right? So I wasn't having the same like, whoa, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> that's 
understandable. Um, we'll give you a pass for being yeah, so young. But yeah. I think that I really think that that's part of what probably shaped a lot of what you do today. I mean, looking at that and like you said, family involvement and just looking back, all of those things shape us and really leave a mark, an indelible mark on just our journey and where we're headed. So I think that was an awesome experience. That must have been amazing to just oh, look yeah. at from the inside. Yeah. <laughs> And I think it was one of those things too. And again, this is a reflection that I can have as an adult, but Oakland Unified School District had a lot of problems. So that wasn't the only like organizing meeting that my parent took me to, but I think it also stresses context of like, we should not settle for these piecemeal solutions because mm-hmm. when I was in first grade, there was another direct action where the teachers were on strike. And yeah. so I had this <laughs> teacher, Miss Clement, I remember here <laughs> under a tree and that was our class classroom because she was like I'm not going to that school yeah but I still want to teach the baby so bring your child here and so Mm -hmm. if I think about that like all of these things working together it reminds me that these are all ways that Black folks are told that they can only show up in spaces a particular way. You can only show up if you're going to be underpaid like as a teacher or something like that exactly not disconnected from language justice. So then like Mm -hmm. supporting Black teachers and Black students to speak in home languages, those are all tied together, right? And I'm sure that can tie into like deeper work around like the Crown Act to be able to wear your hair as To be your full self and just show up in a space as entirely you Mm -hmm. and that be enough. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not necessary to put on any airs. It's not necessary to change what you look like, who you are, how you exist is mm-hmm. what we value and that's what we're here to teach and to build on mm-hmm. that's i mean i don't know how hard that is but apparently <laughs> just in research <laughs> and looking at some of the places i've worked and things i've seen just in my journey i think it's apparently very challenging but i don't know why because i think yeah. we can validate and educate at the same time so that's amazing that i cannot imagine being in the middle of that so my first exposure to the abonics controversy i'd say i was at the time in high school transitioning to college and so i kind of heard about it i was kind of like you know in my own world doing my own thing at the time my big transition was coming up but looking at this idea of just the backlash that came from it was really what spoke to me the most what i heard the most what i saw the most and that was also problematic because it gave me a lot of negative perceptions about black language about black communication and identity and that's also problematic in our society that we see the backlash or half of the story and in some ways it maybe echoes some things that are going on now but (laughs) do you feel that the Bionics controversy like sort of connects at all to what we see with critical race theory now? Yes. But the other thing that I think about too, and of course, like so much appreciation to folks like Kimberly Crenshaw for like naming and describing these different things, because I also think before there were these academic, theoretical, really cool sounding names for things, there were mm-hmm. Black people meeting around a kitchen table who was like, you know, exactly. that's what doing so-and-so. <laughs> and they probably said it in Black English, right? Yeah. And like that's meaningful to me to think about just the way that we have expressed to each other things that we knew, things to be truths were in Black English or Ebonics. And that's the same knowledge that now is being excluded not that it was really ever fully integrated into curriculum yeah yeah 
I think it's another where we're, we're getting the backlash and people who really don't know the crux of the issue and don't understand fully even what the terminology is, whether it's ebonics or whether it's critical race theory, they don't understand the fullness and the complexity of the issues, but they're making major decisions and even arguing and deciding that's the hill they want to die on in terms of yeah. like being against something, but that you don't fully understand. And that's, I see that a lot. Just historically, we've seen that a lot in our country and the world. We've seen that a lot. So I really would encourage people to explore what these issues are prior to making a decision about them. And I think that's anything, any in any aspect of life, explore it a little bit and understand it more fully before deciding something completely. Because even for me early on, like I said, I heard a lot of the negative media, a lot of the problematic things that were being said, and I did not take that moment at that time to explore it. Now, much later, I did come back, I circled back around and looked at that, but it's only in doing that that I can really fully see what the issues are. Even in just preparing for today, I was like, I need to go look at articles. But I was like, I can't do too much because I don't want to be repeating what the article said not what I remember. Um, <laughs> but one of the articles, I think it was in the LA Times, they were talking about how one of the critiques of the movement around Ebonics was that there wasn't enough research to suggest that teaching or learning in Ebonics was effective for Black students. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, but what's the research that we fund, that we create services for? Like, do we listen to folks like you who are supporting students and their families and seeing how there might be, there might be a difference. But again, sometimes academia hasn't caught up to what yeah. Black actually know I would say even to then to like read articles, but also be critical because yes. sometimes, I don't want to say sometimes, but it is intentional. Many times, yeah. yeah there's <laughs> been a lack of research around this to really justify why Black English is a language and is important and cannot be separated from our larger culture. And I think what you've spoken to in terms of whose research is out there, what is actually being said and what's upheld is problematic. Just coming from a speech pathology standpoint, we have this whole movement around evidence-based practice, but whose evidence, you know, what evidence do we have and who is reflected in that evidence? And then what does that say about communities that you're continuing to marginalize that, mm -hmm. you know, are not present necessarily in there? And then what's the standard, the quote unquote standard that we're holding individuals to when they're not represented in that space? And I don't know, maybe you can speak to it. I'm not sure, but with social work, it may be evident as well in research. I don't know in other fields, but I'm sure it happens. I see it in education as well. I would say definitely just this morning, and this is getting to what you're talking about around evidence-based practices. I was listening to NPR and there was a social worker who was talking about research that she did at the University of Maryland around how to support parenting folks to raise like healthy and thriving children and to end cycles of abuse. And something that she talked about was that there's been so much research done around how someone might be impacted by individual therapy or counseling or support, but not as much about how people are impacted by like communities of care. And so mm -hmm. she talked about how recently at this university, they studied interventions, mostly amongst Black and Brown parents, and it yielded so much greater results. Now, of course, we can say, we already knew that. Black yeah, folks are right? Okay, like we do <laughs> better when we're in community exactly. and are able to talk to people who have had similar experiences. But mm -hmm. again, that gets onto like who has been included in research, whose yeah. um, ways of being and community has been validated and mm -hmm. has had that reflected in interventions. And so many times Black folks and other folks of marginalized
marginalized races as well have not really gotten to benefit from that, right? No. So I totally agree. Yeah. But I just have to say, because otherwise Howard's going to be real mad at me. <laughs> where I just have to stress <laughs> historically black colleges. <laughs> no, I hear you there. Um, I think that's so important because if we're not reflecting diverse populations, then when we're educating individuals, when we're pulling from that, me as from time to time, I do adjunct professor positions. So if I'm pulling information, where am I getting my information? You know, what information is there to even draw from? And I recognize that this is problematic, this idea that I have to go with what's out there that is very much controlled by certain groups. So yeah. I recognize that challenge and I recognize how I can sort of work through that. But there are other individuals who are taking things at face value and saying, oh, this is what the, the research says. And so therefore, yeah. this is what we're doing. And that perpetuates the issues in our fields, you know, in our different professions and helping professions, that's even more problematic. But as we're doing this, we're just reinforcing this narrative that certain mm-hmm. people are the focus and other people are the outliers. Yeah. And that, that I, I can't engage in that anymore. I cannot be a part of that anymore. I really need to work against that. What do you think that school-based professionals can do to promote social justice through education? Oh, yes. So a good friend introduced me to this phrase, like moving from charity to solidarity. And I think so often in our professional roles, uh-oh. Like, write that okay, down. Listen. <laughs> Sometimes in our professional roles, especially when there are roles that I want to say are almost, it's a professional like caretaking or caregiving or teaching. There sometimes is this mindset of like charity. So like, I'm going to be here to save people from themselves. Or even if we use like Ibram Kendi's like spectrum, right? There are mm-hmm. folks who come in with this type of like assimilationist orientation. Mm-hmm. Like I have these tools that I need to give these children as opposed to like an anti-racist approach, which might be like, what might collaborative education look like by inherently believed that the children and their families that I were supporting have cultures worthy of like dignity and respect. And if I think of like the ethics of social work, one of our code of ethics is the right to self-determination. That part. (laughs) So some of us forget that one. (laughs) Yeah, Um, seriously. That people can craft and maybe with support if that's needed, but can craft their best solutions because they know they have the best idea of like the nuances and layers of whatever system or barrier, you know, Mm -hmm. they're coming up against. So I would say teachers in the same way, it's a blessing to be in relationship with students and their families. But then it's a question of, okay, how do I move from showing up within like this assimilationist type view to someone who's anti-racist? How might that change teaching instruction? How might that change the questions that I ask? How might Mm -hmm. that change my approach to parent engagement. Now I'm not like, let me yeah. save children from their parents. Now I'm like, okay, I need to address the family as a unit. Yes, um, because-, because that's how black and brown folks like community, <laughs> all these yes. things, right? So definitely. Yeah, that's so important because I, I feel like a lot of teachers that have come across, and not all of them, but a lot of teachers in inner city settings in particular, show up with sort of a suitcase of things that they feel they need to deposit into children in order for those children to be successful. And it's really, again, about validating and building on what the students are bringing to the table. We also have in our society prescriptive ideals about success, about what we expect people to be doing with their lives when we're trying to prescribe that 
we're erasing a lot of that experience, a lot of those values, a lot of those perspectives and, and even preferences that students may have in terms of who they would like to see themselves be, what they would like to do and engage in when they get older. I think that people have a vision of that to some degree, and they should have some autonomy in that and developing oh, yeah. that instead of just being told, here's what you need and here's what I want you to do. When did you realize that your culture and or your language was different from the quote unquote mainstream? It's so hard to place, but mm -hmm. thinking just about the context of school. So Oakland School District, and it might work different now, but I was actually supposed to go to a different elementary school than oh, okay. the one that I went to. And the process of me moving from one school to another was a whole thing that probably a lot of Black parents know about. But in particular, for my primary parent, there was a concern that at the school that we were going to go to, there wasn't a strong Black community in that school. There was okay. a really strong Asian American community at that school, which mm -hmm. was really, really beautiful. But I remember my mom talking to me, being concerned about how that might impact me in the classroom. Now, again, I was a child. Like, <laughs> okay, I don't know how I even remember this, but I was like, I remember I was going to that school. I'm not at that school. Why not? Right? Yeah. I remember that being something that she talked to me about. And then when I was at this other school, when I was, I mean, now that I'm adult and have talked to like other Black adults, I realized how rare it was for me to have so many Black mm -hmm. teachers in elementary school. Like, wow. Yeah. But there were some altercations with other students. And this is, again, where we can talk about like racism or bias really being learned because there was a few incidents with white students who like said really cruel things or I remember there was one thing like with the valentine that was like supposed to be cute but was actually really offensive and my parent was like lord but yeah. <laughs> I have to go down to that school um, <laughs> I think that for me was like oh mm -hmm. okay so the way yeah. that I'm talking amongst my family I don't think I realized that it was different but just that other people didn't value it and there was like a judgment I don't because I don't even think I really had an understanding of like well how did those people talk in their homes I just understood yeah. Whatever I'm doing, it's being communicated to me that like, that's what these folks don't do at school mm -hmm. or things like that. And I think a longer term thing was that my sibling and I, I don't remember if it was like a speech language pathologist, it might've been, but we're put in special classes. I think it was like one-on-one -on -one time around, I don't know if they called it, it wasn't like articulation or like pronouncing. And then I can look back about it and be like, was come on, yeah, like, come on. <laughs> was showing up talking like English. Is that what that was about? Yeah, probably. I don't know, but I suspect <laughs> that it was because I wasn't in other, like, special education programming. Mm -hmm. It was just that. Yeah. So... To pathologize your identity yeah, a little bit. and it didn't feel... Like, everybody it needs that. Felt it felt like a reward, but it didn't mm -hmm. feel like a reward. So... And that's the tangible part probably of the memory yeah. is that it didn't feel yeah. that way. But yeah, a lot of times what's happening is that different ways of just communicating, existing, expressing oneself that becomes the thing that we pathologize in, in fooling. And that's frustrating as well. That's There's so much to unpack. It's really harmful to communities, to individuals to do that. Mm -hmm. So the more important question on that, how yeah. did you learn to embrace or to celebrate your difference? And then also, how are you fostering that in your child? Oh, that's beautiful. I would say it was, and it still is a work in progress, if I'm being honest. I've always spoke 
like a specific way and continue to speak a specific way within my family, which is Black English. But I would say what really started to bridge like my home communication with Mm -hmm. the communication I was having like at school or in like professional settings was organizing, to be honest. I started going to protests like as an adult. I don't know when I was like 18, 19 in college. And I remember some of the speakers, some of the direct actions who resonated with me most were those who like spoke in what I would call like my home language. And I don't know that in the moment I was like, why is this speaking to me? I think it, for the longest time I associated with church, I was like, oh, cause they're talking like yeah. how the preacher talk. But I was mm-hmm. like, but how does the preacher talk? Because that also, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it speaks to your but, soul. Like it gets to yeah. the very heart of and who you are. Like, yeah. Wow. And that kind of gets me to as an adult too. I realized there just isn't a way within standard English to express like the harm and what we want. And that's intentional. Mm-hmm. So I need to use a home language that has created different meanings and structure to yes. talk about more complex but just more beautiful things. Mm. So yeah, I would say, I don't think I realized that really until adulthood. And then I would say with my daughter, now I'm going to just say it. I named her Zora. After okay. Zora. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, I was trying, <laughs> I was trying to do it from the get. I see. Like Juneteenth, you know, yeah. planning. <laughs> you're like, this is what you're going to be birthday right here. Got a whole legacy. <laughs> That's awesome. So I would desire to do that. And I think the other part of that is me acknowledging that that doesn't happen just with like Zora and myself within our family it needs to be a community so that was also one of the intentional things about us moving from where we were in California to DC because Mm -hmm. like wow how special was it that I had black teachers Columbia, they're being yeah. teachers, my sibling being one of them. Okay. But I really wanted my child to have the benefit of learning from Black teachers who also, mm-hmm. yeah, integrated Black studies, but also Black English into how they were sharing, or basically almost like mirrored how I talked to my child so that mm-hmm. she doesn't feel how I did for mm-hmm. a bit of time, that it needed to be these separate languages for, for different spaces. But again, it's still a work in process. My child's just, yes. well, I can't be out here getting Well, yeah, you're advice. early, then you're good. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot to handle early on. I understand a lot of the way that we do that for our children really speaks volumes to where we are coming from with that and and what we identify as being valuable and important. And I think that that resonates with listeners, with other people who are maybe outside of the space trying to figure out how to be allies and advocates and co-conspirators, etc. What is there that we should lift up? So that's beautiful, Mm -hmm. though. I really love what you shared. I thank you again for just being here with me, just having this discussion, letting me look a little bit deeper into your background since I was blown away by the CV and the bio. (laughs) And I do look forward to continued communication with you and and collaboration. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I am so excited to see all of the things that you continue to do. Thank you for tuning in to The Culture We Speak. Special thanks to our guests, Miss Simone Ruskamp and Taja Sparkman for the original lyrics to our theme music. I'd like to thank our sponsor, React Initiative, Inc., a nonprofit organization advocating for equity in education. Visit theculturewespeak.com for additional resources and be sure to subscribe for updates.